Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another Eurective debate happening live over on Twitter at the hashtag EADebates. Today's event, Restoring the Earth's Lungs, How Can Forests Support Climate Change Mitigation, predictably tackles forest and is supported by Life Terra. You can join the discussion at any time by submitting your questions or thoughts via Slido in the chat. Trees are great. Forests comprise 45% of European land, often termed as the lungs of our little blue planet. But trees, like much of the national environment, have had a rough few decades, facing clear cuts and in Europe's ever-growing hunger for new highways. To tackle this, the European Commission proposed a nature restoration law in 2021. Here, the name says it all. We are here today to answer some of the most pressing questions that have arisen since. How can tree planting and forest restoration support climate change mitigation? What role can projects like Life Terra play in reaching the Commission's targets? And how can projects like this be replicated elsewhere? With me today to tackle this question and so much more are our esteemed panelists. In no particular order, I'm happy to be introducing Humberto Delgado Rosa, Director of Biodiversity at the European Commission's DG Envy. Anna de Parne-Grüneberg, a Greens EFA member of the European Parliament and a substitute in the Environment and Health Committee. Stoyan Chukunov, is it okay if I call you Stoyan? Stoyan is the president of the Beef Breeders Association of Bulgaria and part of Group 3 in the European Economic and Social Committee, EESC in short. For those not familiar with the ESC, it's one of the EU's oldest consultative institutions. Group 3 are the civil society organizations alongside other groups that gather employees or employers. Moving on, I'm happy to introduce Kelsey Perlman, a forest and climate campaigner at the pro-forest NGO FERN. And last but not least, Marta Mugica, a planning coordinator at LifeTerra. Mr. Delgado Rosa, you have the floor for a quick introductory statement. Uh, okay, so let me say, you said trees are great. I would say photosynthesis is great, is the best technology you have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So of course, protecting nature and restoring nature uh, as a big uh, a big role to play versus climate change mitigation and byway adaptation we see more and more the linkage between the two uh, the two topics and we have seen recently with the approval of the new um, global deal for nature at cop 15 of the convention of biological diversity which has come with several quantified targets to protect to restore uh, to finance nature that we now see both topics climate change and biodiversity coming to the same high level of attention and protection so indeed i would say the nature restoration law that we tabled last year is one game changer in the sense that it does focus uh, primarily on those ecosystems that deliver the most for climate change mitigation and adaptation but of course it's just one piece one piece of the puzzle of the many deliverables that have come from the Green Deal and include many other uh, elements, such as the forest strategy to 2030 that we've tabled, the LULUCF regulation that requests more carbon sinks for member states, and that's forests, but not only forests. There's a lot that can be done in wetlands, peatlands, many other ecosystems covered by the nature restoration law. And I would also add that now that we do have a global target agreed in by the EU and its member states in the Convention of Biological Diversity 
for restoration, 30% of all the Greater London Sea to be restored or have measures of restoration until 2030. That only gives more fuel to the need to have the nature restoration law negotiated and approved by the co-legislators. You. Ms. Depane Grunenberg, your turn. Yeah, um, hello everybody and pleased to be here. Forests are definitely our key allies uh, to fight the climate crisis and also the biodiversity loss. And forest accounts 92% of all terrestrial biomass globally. They're storing, um, we are a calculation, 400 gigatons of, uh, of sea, of carbon. And so they're storing CO2 in wood and soil um, filtering water and also cooling landscapes. So they have a big role also to climate mitigation to play. And the economic interests are too often nowadays in the foreground in forest management. And the consequences is to make it simple over exploitation of forest with um, fatal consequences for species and for climate. And at the end for us as a species, uh, as humankind. So our forest management need, needs a deep transformation towards a close um, to nature or ecological forest management. And it has been successful in several places in Europe. And so we have to look at this example to make a link between the climate rule of forests, economic and the social rule of forests. And we have to take action as Europe if we want to be on track by the Green Deal. Thank you. Move on to you, Stoyan. Yeah, hi. Uh, I just want to pick up on where the Mrs. Grunenberg just stand up. That uh, by representing Economic and Social Committee, we are trying actually to strike a balance in between, of course, the sustainable use of forests, but also we don't want our farmers and forest owners to lose their their jobs, basically, because we are hardly relying on the products coming from the from the forestry. And that's why we are calling for more, beside we are supporting, of course, the nature restoration law, but for more technology and new technology, how to use the byproducts and how to probably better live with the with the forest and being in, in the synchron with all this, but however producing enough food for the for the population. Ms. Perelman, please go ahead. Yeah, so you said that trees are great. I think I'll follow and say that forests are great. Uh, of course, restoration is is definitely important, but it's we need to understand our terms when we say forest restoration. Um, it's not equivalent with tree planting. Uh, it can be an element of restoration if it's carried out appropriately, but it's not the bulk of the action that Europe needs to, to restore their forests. Fundamentally, we need to be thinking about how we're doing forestry. Uh, planting is just one part of that, but there's a whole matrix of, of different actions. So uh, Ms. Grunenberg, uh, she talked about the need to actually have a discussion about how we manage forests. Uh, there's also, you know, strictly protecting the highly biodiverse areas. Uh, and to be able to do all of these things, we need the EU to come in, uh, both to promote the long-lived wood products, uh, but also to promote the restoration. Because uh, coming back to Stoyan's point on the jobs, I mean, we need to be asking ourselves, how can the forest best support us? And they support us well when they're resilient. And our current intensive use of the forest uh, currently needs less and less people. Uh, 
whereas if we kind of follow the nature restoration agenda, we have a potential to develop over 500,000 jobs. So we should be thinking about, you know, not just fighting climate change, but we've always needed for us for, for our well-being uh, and, you know, for the environment as well. So we should be thinking about this just transition in the I think I would love to pick back on something that we've already hit on, the careful weighing of economic interests versus nature, the interests of nature in being unharmed, the careful tightrope walk that legislators must walk in meeting demands both from the forest owners and the forestry industry, where a lot of, a lot of them have been very vocal, as well as those who have a genuine, pure interest in ensuring that the forests are as unharmed as possible. Mr. Delgado Rosa, you're a man where all these strings run together. How do you manage to, or how are you attempting to strike this balance? Well, I honestly think that there is nowadays a convergence of all those objectives. Because if you see the forest economy in Europe has been suffering by several impacts and threats that uh, um, hit our forests. Uh, forest fires, of course, but also the droughts, the pests that often go and um, hit more strongly monocultures because they are less resilient. So what we have been trying to do with our forest strategy, uh, focusing on the win-wins between climate, biodiversity and the bioeconomy, and also the nature restoration law. I often say the nature restoration law was not tabled for the sake of nature. It was tabled for the sake of people and the ecosystems ecosystem services that we have been losing, uh, including on, on forests. And of these ecosystem services, one of them is, of course, timber provision. There are several others, often more valuable, and we need to strike a balance. Now, when we do understand that our, let's say, traditionally intensive practices of the past are not delivering any longer for these wider services that we want as a society to get, we need to adapt our forestry, and I make no distinction as protection versus forestry. Protection is one form of forest management that should be present everywhere where there's a forest. To a certain extent, depends where we put the cursor. But I basically believe that, yes, there's a convergence. It's, of course, difficult to find the right balance because we all look at it with different lenses, and that's the difficulty of the policymaking. Stoyan. As 
also a beef breeder. I assume that you're oftentimes fighting against people you may term forest activists in Bulgaria. Where do you come in for this? Like, where does the balance lie, the perfect balance lie for you? No, no, no. I'm not fighting because uh, beside the beef breeder, I have also walnut trees plantation. So, uh, <laughs> me personally, I planted about 4,400 trees. So, uh, <laughs> I'm on the other side. Well, uh, but we have to, I, I just want to come back to what Kelsey said that uh, we have a huge difference in between, the, let's say, the, the tree plantation and the forest. The forest is completely different as far as an ecosystem that it's not only trees, but we have all these biodiversity and uh, wildlife, etc., etc. So probably we should, let me say, I'm most focusing about how to preserve the forest in Bulgaria because we have a... I don't want to touch on this subject right now, but we have an extensive kind of use of uh, of uh, wood for energy and for heating the houses. So that's not only here, but in many countries in uh, member states. So uh, this is what destroys the biodiversity and destroys the forest, actually. So this is one of the topics that I'm mostly focused. And uh, I, I think the... The, the the cows basically and the beef breeding wells goes very well with the with the forestry because especially with the climate changes you need some shades for those animals and that's the best place to be it's actually in the forest and of course it's uh, retaining the water and uh, it's uh, again the cows being before us here they survive it also the 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 ice age etc so we should kind of maintain those natural habitats and go hand with hand with the forestry do you want to respond to that if not i would give it to miss gruneberg to sort of conclude our capitalistic foray into the woods yeah so please, I, can, I can step in yeah thank you um it's difficult to find the balance, but now we are not really touching it. And uh, so I know um, Mr. Delgado Rosa is really on our side, but at the end, we have this difficulty that 40% uh, of the land is covered by forest in the EU, but we don't have the core competence. And, but we have the competence and we have um, our role to play in climate uh, mitigation and fighting against climate change, uh, that's something we have to do at the European level. We have to um, provide ecosystem services and just also protect nature, just added such. And that are really clear um, things we have to do at the EU level, but we don't have competences on 40% of the land to really act. Uh, so that's really something we, we have to speak about. And I want to just demystify maybe something because we all know really beautiful forests, uh, where you are looking for huge um, trunks and huge um, trees where we can do um, some good CO2 storage. But we have to see that two-thirds of EU forests are even aged, so they are monocultural plantation. And the clear-cutting is the common harvesting practices in the most European countries still today. So intensive logging, uh, we can see it in Scandinavia, in the Baltic, but also in France, 
and they're really big sources uh, from carbon and not any more sinks. Even we see and we can read everywhere, but the, the area of forests are growing in Europe. But um, even a clear-cut forest is counted as a forest area. So that is something we have really to look at. And also, and that's a point uh, um, previous speaker told, um, the half of the wood, and we suppose that uh, there are um, 800,000 hectare of forest and the EU have been burned. So that's not about storage or just burning for local purpose, the residue wood that could be considered as a, a renewable in a way, but it's just cutting down huge amount of forest and burning them and so emitting uh, a lot of CO2 and at the end you're replanting of course you are not allowed to let it like that but you we know that for decades we will have uh, because the soil is dying and all the um, fungi and all the life in the soil are dying we are going to have an emission of CO2 for for decades um, and we have a problem now. And so maybe in two, three hundred years, we're going to have a forest back. But uh, first, we don't know with the climate change if the forest is coming back in the same quality. And then the second, we know that we have for decades a really um, em emission of CO2. And that's something we have really problematic to, to tackle. So I really agree we have to look at the pristine and uh, primary forest and to pro protect them harshly because we need this biodiversity genetical pool. Um, we have to change our practices and we have really to look at uh, how many competences we maybe can have jointly if we want to save forest, climate and biodiversity. Ms. Perlman, do you think it's time that activists start once again chaining themselves to trees to protect them from such clear cuts that leave forestry area devastated? Well, I think that's still already being done in some areas, but I mean, to a certain extent, I think we need to get beyond this um, divide between activists and foresters, because to a certain extent, I think it's really a false dichotomy. It's like saying that you can't have jobs in the forest and have a forest getting healthier over time. It comes back to the fact that a forester can also be somebody that's working in a protected area. And when we think about, I mean, I want healthy forests as much as I want um, healthy and vibrant forestry jobs in the sector as well. And if we if we look at the economic data, you can see that in some of the most forested areas of the world where the industry of forestry is quite strong, I'm thinking of Germany, I'm thinking of Finland, there you can see in the wood processing sectors, um, you can see in the forest themselves, those that are in the forest and, and harvesting, they're losing jobs. So we have to address sustainable development in this sector as a whole. So as an activist, I care about sustainable development. I care about healthy forests that can provide jobs to more people than we do today because this sector is on the decline. And, you know, I care about uh, climate and, and the biodiversity crisis. So I think in some areas that requires people to to chain themselves to the last remaining old growth forests. Uh, and in other areas, it requires us to, to, to look beyond uh, strict protection in some areas and to, and to see the way that we are going to stop uh, incentivizing so much wood harvesting that it encroaches on these protected areas. So um, just like we need activists to do many different things, uh, we need uh, several different solutions for restoration uh, to ensure that we're, we're covering the, you know, 
the 40% of the forests across, across Europe. That again is where regulators are supposed to come in. But given the split in competences, how much room do you actually have for, to address these issues, Mr. Delgado Rosa? Well, I actually think we have room enough because I have the view that there is shared competence between the EU and the member states on the forests. We have often heard the argument, oh, the EU has no competence, but uh, it, it's hardly true. And we have even some legal backing on that because there are many regulations that do address the environment and forests are part of the environment. So if you, if you just think about, uh, well, LULUCF, the Nature Restoration Law, the Habitats Directive, the EU Timber Regulation. So I think the debate now could be more on what's the right level of competence sharing or if you want of subsidiarity. And I have a very good example for that, which is, well, the Nature Restoration Law in the sense that, well, what does it say for forests? First one distinction. There are forest habitats that are already protected by current law, such as those covered in Annex 1 of the Habitats Directive. And for those what the Nature Restoration Law proposes is certain targets of restoration by 2030, 2040, 2050. So it brings in a timeline. But for the non-protected forests, what is proposed is an increase in some indicators which are correlated with forest resilience, with biodiversity, with uh, the climate services of forests. But for these indicators, it's totally for the member states to define how much increase and where. That's the full subsidiarity they would have in these nature restoration plans. But as a we final comment, let me just, Go I would just say on as a final comment, I see the comment of Kelsey showing what I said. There is a convergence in practice between environmentalists, foresters, and if we look at it with the right angle, and even a, a strict protection of all growth forests and the primary forests, well, if we want the rest of the world to protect their primary forests, we should do the same in the EU. And even strict protection is, in my view, a special case of forest management. So it's no, it's no, not no exclusion. Uh, foresters and and uh, forestry is uh, shaping it in that case towards allowing natural processes to proceed undisturbed. But yes, you've already addressed the push for flexibility that is coming from the member states. Anna, would you say? that Humberto has good chances of getting his increase in ambition that the Commission is pushing for through against the concerted opposition from the member states who are building strong alliances. For example, like the forestry friends, I think it's Austria, Finland, Sweden and Slovenia, where they're really building these strong coalitions to ensure that they have the flexibility that they want. Do you think that this will survive the legislative process? Yeah, I wish I would uh, be so, um, yeah, so confident, uh, like uh, Mr. Delgado Rosa, that we are really um, the strength to have this shared competences. Of course, we have it. But at the end, we see in the legislative process that each time we are stepping seriously in forest management, even in a minimum standard that it's not really high compared to other regions uh, in Europe, where we see much higher uh, legislative uh, minimum uh, on management of forests, ecological management, that this alliance all the time are just blocking. And um, if they're taking the step that it's just a national competence or not, at the end, it's not such a big question because we are not coming forward. We've seen that in the LULUCF. 
we have now really huge um, amount of CO2 that the forest uh, should um, sink and, and store, but we have no really, we have just ideas or um, some, um, some several sentences in the text, how it could uh, be, but at the end, if the, if the result is not there, we are not going to say, okay, um, you didn't touch at your forestry management. Um, no, you're not in in the corridor we decided together. So that's sometimes really difficult for me, uh, following that now for years, to have a look at each legislation proposal. Now, um, maybe we're going to have the forestry um, monitoring or we are, of course, uh, looking at the um, nature restoration law. There are some possibility to have good indicators, to have minimum standards and to learn from each others and um, yeah, to bring the forestry sector together. Um, but we are not really able to step in. And the most difficulty is that we are not um, really able to, to have this common voice uh, to say we want uh, to have some compensation maybe to make this transition toward what is in place now and to have other jobs and other way to manage forests or to protect forests as a management form in, in future. And I think um, that's a little bit the weakness we see now that each member state is just protecting the way it was always there. Um, from Slovenia, we know they have good practices, but they don't want the EU to, to come in because there may be fear that it will worsen their own standards. And other countries, um, they have really low standards, but they are just saying in our countries, you cannot do uh, forestry in another way. So we want to decide alone. And at the end, you don't have a common voice. And it's really difficult for the forester to have confidence that the EU will step and make their life better. And I think that it's a point where we have to, to speak together because we see that the forests are in threat. And without forests, no forestry at the end. So we have to work together. Anna, I think you've covered the policy side of things very well. But there was a question on Slido by Patricia asking about on-the-ground changes, where how forestry practices are being changed to improve climate change mitigation and carbon sequestration. And Marta, being very close to the ground, by sometimes probably even actually touching it and planting a tree, I hope, what have you been observing in the last five years? How is practices, are forestry practices changing to become more sustainable, or are they at all? I think they are changing. For example, projects uh, like us, as like Terra, uh, we are planting trees, as you said, we are on the ground. But for example, talking with landowners, we never plant less than five forest species together. So meaning that we're never planting monocultures, uh, even though it can be a bigger tree that can absorb more uh, carbon. We like try to always plant the right tree, as I said before, in the right place. We understand the conditions there. We also play a little bit with climate change, trying to put always more resilient trees. We also play around with the, we were talking before, the economics of the landowner. If they want to build an agroforestry system or if they want to build a if they want to have a forest with resources for them, we also encourage that. So I think this is changing. 
I think people are also more open to receive a different species and to understand that it's not only about carbon sequestration and it's not only about planting trees and getting it fast, it's about getting it correct and having a healthy ecosystem that can actually be more resilient uh, than to climate change. I don't know if I answered your question. I think that is perfect because it has touched on something that is very important in this discussion and that is forest resilience, avoiding monocultures and the like. And looking at your story, and you mentioned that you plant a lot of trees, but my understanding is as a plantation owner, you only plant one kind of tree. Would the economics sure. fit if you were to plant, like for example Marta does, five different kinds of uh, species in your plantations? Are you not doing that because of the economics or it's because the policy support is missing? Well, uh, it's um, it, it's a little bit different because actually, uh, in this way, I have a double usage of the land by producing hay in between the trees. So economically, that's the better way because you have something that is growing for the future and something that is growing here just for now. And you can feed the cows. That's part of the circularity that I'm actually looking to implicate in my farm. But that's, uh, uh, I, I just wanted to come back to uh, um, Mr. Delgado that uh, basically in our view from the committee side, we, we, we think we should support the commission because it's not very easy to find the balance in between all this. And I just wanted to add something to Marta. Yes, she's 100% right that we have to go local and we have to deal local because there is a huge difference in between the, the, the forest in the European Union, in between North and South, for example. And it's affected different way because we have wildfires here in South. I'm in Southeast of Bulgaria next to the Turkish border. So it's a completely different environment comparing to, for example, Sweden. But we should support also the commission by spreading those good practices because by giving a good example here in Europe, how we tackle all these problems with the forest and of course uh, also by the by the trade agreements we need to we need to show the good example to the other countries in order to stop the deforestation because basically there is not enough money to just reforest here the european union we need to try to intervene globally in order to help to tackle the climate changes and uh, the, all the issues with the carbon. And it's not going to happen just with the European budget. So uh, just to summarize and <laughs> to answer now to your question, yeah, we should make a difference in between forest and tree plantation. And of course, there is a different economical logic and different economical goals in the two. It's a bit of a shame we don't have anybody from the Committee of the Regions here today. I think they would very much like to weigh in on the local component of trees. But sort of, I would like to touch back on the Amazon and global tree outlook later if we have the time. More looking at Europe, you pointed out the geographical differences in Sweden and Slovenia and whatnot. Ms. Perlman, could you shed some light on whether a tree is always just a tree in Europe or if the regional differences need to be taken into account more, even for us when we think about it. Like, do we have reason to believe that trees are more efficient at carbon sequestration, for example, in Finland than they would be in, say, Spain? Can you shed some light on that? 
Sure. So, of course, we need to to think about regional differences of forests. The boreal forest, which you know covers Norway, Finland, Sweden, some of the Baltic states, they're very different from Mediterranean forests. That being said, if we look at the general literature around restoration, what is biodiversity? It is increasing variation of life forms in a space. So whether we're talking about increasing to 20 tree species in Sweden, and we're talking about increasing to 120 in France, we're still talking about an increase in species diversity for the resilience of those trees. So there are some common principles around biodiversity that can be agreed irrespective of the differences of regions. And I think that's quite important to take into account, because if you look at some of the global studies about the connectivity, which is how closely connected are these little patches of forest and does that allow biodiversity to spread between them, you'll find that Europe, taking into account all of these different types of forests, is the most degraded. So comparing that to Brazil, uh, you could ask, you know, is this what, what What is the difference between what Brazil's doing and what Europe's doing? We may have a lot of forests in Europe, but the forests aren't very healthy. We may be increasing the density of trees on a plot of land, but the health of those trees aren't fantastic. I would not suggest to Brazil with 97% of primary forests to adopt the model that Europe has, especially when we're talking about the question of biodiversity. So, of course, we have, we have different types of tree species, but we have a, a very specific common goal across the EU to to increase the health of all of these forests. And that is something that we can uh, develop common indicators for easily. Mm -hmm. I think that caps the European policy review off pretty well, or at least I would love to move to a different topic. And that is taking a bit stock of what has led us here. How has the past year, the past five years been for Europe's forests? Because my understanding is, and this is once again where biomass plays a large role, is that one of the only reasons the EU was able to achieve its renewable energy target was through an insane increase in the burning of biomass, for one, and then coupled with the energy crisis where wood has become extremely cost competitive when it comes to heating one's own home. Mr. Humberto, how do you think European forests have fared, fared in, the, in the face of such strong drivers that would lead to their diminishing? Well, first, let me say I endorse what Kelsey said. So we have seen growth in European forests, but we have not seen an increase in the quality and the resilience of European forests. They have suffered a lot from several threats, which are, as yes, exacerbated by climate change. But climate change is not the only cause. We also have several cases of mismanagement or unsustainable management in several parts of Europe that have added to the pressure. So when we see a decreasing carbon sink indeed, that, well, that means we have been over-harvesting probably, and we certainly need more of the carbon sinks, while we still need, of course, to uh, also use timber. So uh, I know that you want to divert from the, let's say, the intra-EU um, legislation or application, but I still wanted to say uh, some words on that. Because first, to, to thank Stoyan for his praise of the Commission, we are not very used to be praised, we are more used to be criticized, but indeed, we've tried very strongly to reach the balance, including on how we tackle sustainable forest management, a concept we endorse, 
So we do give in the forest strategy some principles like clear cuts should be avoided. You should you should avoid monocultures, and I can add we should avoid heavy machinery, etc., because they are usually associated with less healthy forests. But we are not prescribing to Finland how to manage their forests, to Portugal how to prevent forest fires, or to Bulgaria how to do agroforestry. We give these principles, and then the subsidiary kicks in. And let me just add another aspect, which is, well, I happen to have been in Slovenia and learned there how advanced they are in close to nature forestry. Clear cuts were banned in the 40s of the 20th century, and close to nature forestry is a basic approach. And for cases I visited, the reason why some forest owners have moved for close to nature forestry was economy because they save money and get more quality from that approach that taps more from the ecosystem services. So finally, I do think that if we can come in as announcing the forest strategy with some guidelines on how to approach indicators of sustainable forest management in a way they can, that they can be quantified so that we do know where sustainable forest management is happening and not use the concept as a smokescreen will be much better served. I guess we're sticking to forestry policy. Anna, do you think that its forestry strategy is at risk of becoming a smokescreen for forestry industry interests? Or are you thinking that this is going to be a genuine effort to improve the health and quality of European forests? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, that we, we did our best with the uh, with the majorities, the political majorities we have here, but at the end, it's not enough <laughs> in the forest strategy. It's, it's only a strategy and we have good sentences, but not uh, really clear um, ideas how to implement it. And I, I want to, to, to tackle that again, the pressure on our forest in Europe is enormous. Um, if you're looking to different committees, you will find everywhere, somewhere where you have to deal with forestry, but it's just the same forest at the end. So we need wood for construction. That's really ecological because you're storing um, CO2. But we need wood for fast furniture. Unfortunately, we are just really doing a lot of furniture in Europe for pulp on paper, for energy, a lot. More or less the half of the, of the wood is just burned. And so the CO2 is just in the air. But we need also a wood for textile or chips, bioeconomy, that's a new uh, good word for that. And But we need also to protect just the ecosystem at, as, as such, because we know that resilient forests are our best ally also to, to protect our, our villages, our towns from extreme weather coming from the climate change. So I want to remember this really uh, sad catastrophe we, we had with the flooding in Germany. That's just because there is no um, forest anymore that can be a sponge for really extreme weather and to avoid floods. And uh, we need also the forest for biodiversity and for, for climate, we had that. But at the end, we have to regulate that in a way that we can, we can deal with that. We can not let just each part of the sectoral uh, looking at forests do their own thing because at the end we have an overuse and we are lacking these, um, these goals we have all together. So that's really the question. Um, putting in a, uh, in a balance sheet that you have a bunch of renewable energy as um, actually France is doing 
But if you look at that, more than the half of the energy of the renewable in France is just burning wood for producing electricity. And that's absolutely not uh, efficient. And it's not, um, uh, it's not in line with the forest strategy, we have to say. Um, so Anna, we need context, more and strong policy. Top. In that context, I have a great question from Slido by Eduardo, who is asking, because you have listed all these services that are largely unseen that forests provide to Europeans, whether it acts as a sponge for rainwater or as a general insurance against biodiversity loss. And he's asking whether it would be useful to improve the current payment system for ecosystem service so as to make it more fit for purpose. Anna, where do you fall on that? Do you think that this is something that needs to be done? Oh, I didn't get it um, actually. Uh, just the, the last part of the sentence where so just I had a. He wants to boost the current payment system for ecosystem services and asking whether this is the right way to go about it, given what you just laid out. Yes, I think it's a good idea. Um, we, we stepped in uh, now in Germany with the current government, uh, looking for rewarding really the clear ecosystem services so that as a forest owner, um, you can also have some different ways to earn money because you're just letting the forest grow and be a resilient ecosystem with all these services, filtering air and water, um, protecting us from floods. And that's, I think, the way we, we should go, more or less, looking at regionally at each ecosystem, what are the most valuable function of this ecosystem there, and not just letting play the forces of the market. So we have to look at the really clear ecosystem um, services and to name uh, them and to look for such practices that are going in the good direction. And of course, we have to think about compensation. Humberto, you're the guys with the big calculators. Do you think that European forests are currently being valued what they're worth? Or do you think there's room for improvement? There's a lot of room for improvement, and that's what the forest strategy says. I remember we have seen a study once where the value of a forest, if we count all the ecosystem services, outpaced the value of timber alone by a factor of 18 or so. So this doesn't mean, of course, that timber is valuable, it's very valuable, but so far it has been the main source of revenue for a forest owner. So what we need to do, especially when there are services that forests provide, which are public services, we should put the public money going into that. And actually, the forest strategy refers to this need to improve ways to address payment of ecosystem services. We'll also come with guidelines on how to do that, a life project dealing with that. But there's already ample room, for instance, in the common agriculture policy, if that's the option of the member states, through the measures of rural development or the eco schemes in direct payments that can go in that direction and the initiative on carbon farming that is being shaped and developed is precisely one way to further address payment of ecosystem services i find that fundamental if you want to maintain a viable economy of the forest which is needed for the for the resilience of the forest themselves kelsey since you guys have somewhat of a different perspective and maybe calculators that aren't as large as the commissions, but maybe more on the ground inside. Where do you guys fall in this issue? 
So yes, with my small calculator, we've also been looking at the different types of funds that have been spreading around the European Union. What I would say is um, it doesn't matter if we dedicate 100 million per year to protection of biodiversity, if it's still up against 5 billion per year that's going towards bioenergy subsidies. Um, so we definitely also need to look at the question of unhelpful and unsustainable subsidies that are leading to uh, practices that we don't want to see, uh, degradation of forests. And then we can start looking at this question of, well, how can we promote more uh, the restoration of certain areas? I would say that as it concerns the cap, that's a large portfolio of money. It has not been used by member states um, at the levels that we need to be able to see forest restoration. The European Court of Auditors came out with a report saying that cap funds used for biodiversity have not been able to push the dial in the right direction. So there is money around and we do know the, the types of activities to do to be able to increase restoration, but somehow we're not getting the money to the right actors to be able to, to, to get the results that we want for restoration. Zoyan. To bring you in, yeah, well, you guys uh, are very local and well-connected. Why do you think the money is not going to where it needs to be? I just wanted to come up on, uh, on the cap because it was mentioned twice. And basically, the primary purpose of cap is to support farmers to produce food. So uh, we don't have to kind of uh, go away from this main purpose because it's uh, kind of uh, everybody is expecting that through cap we're going to uh, find a resolution for all kinds of problems and troubles, which is not the case. And that's why we, especially in the committee, European Economic and Social Committee, we wanted to stress that the farmers and forest owners cannot be expected to bear the cost of protecting biodiversity because those we need some additional funding. And, of course, it's not 100 million per year. It's, uh, um, as you know, uh, According to the climate protection law, it's uh, 100 billion, basically. And that's why we don't need to try to, um, to step too much into the CAPS budget, please. And uh, there is uh, no position from the side of the farmers, you know this. Um... <laughs> I think it's very natural for, for example, NGOs like Fern to want to use the biggest pot of money that the EU has to fix one of its biggest problems, forest degradation, climate change. So I totally see where they're coming from. But just, uh, let's just say, I'm curious, like the cap is upwards of 300 billion for this MMF, MFF, I think. Marta, how many trees could you plant with that money? How much, what percentage of the European land would be covered by forest if you spent all that money and gave it towards the trees? We can plant a lot of trees, but I think here also uh, we have to play a little bit. There's um, a lot of ways of producing food. And from my experience and talking with landowners, people want to also change this way they produce food. Again, uh, we were be uh, before talking about a lot of monocultures, but now people want to get into regenerative agriculture, into more uh, ways to uh, produce sustainable food. So I think that also needs to be rewarded. And I think this is kind of like the new couple it should be looking for to, yeah, help farmers to produce their food and produce uh, food for everyone, but 
changing the way, like helping biodiversity, restoring the soils and being more resilient, not only having one um, production that I can die because of a new pest or a new disease, but having different forms of getting their food sources. So I think this is what, for me in the field, what I've been experienced that people want to change and people need support for these changes. But if it's up to you, Humberto, <laughs> no touching the cup money or where do you fall on the issue no, with I, the cup funds? I wanted to pick what Stoyan said about the cap to, to add a bit of, an, uh, of a different view, because I think he's very right that when the cap was formulated, um, a few years after World War II, the main goal of the cap was just pumping food production for sure. But that has been evolving in several cap reforms, not only the latest one, and the cap has now other objectives because societal expectations from farming, yes, of course, healthy food production, but there's also more, there's landscape, there's water, there's soil, there's biodiversity. So actually nowadays we do have in the CAP uh, several specific objectives, three of which are directly environmental. And at the same time, we do know that farmers produce those goods, those goods also. They don't produce only food. They also provide, if, if they do the good practices, all these services that should be rewarded. By what? Well, by taxpayers' money, which is the CAP's money. So the taxpayers' money should go to the public services that public opinion cherishes and expects. And that's in that sense, in a positive way, that we are not putting piggybacking the cap on things that are unrelated to agriculture and forestry, but rather on things that farmers themselves are proud of delivering when doing it properly. Uh, I mean, Anna, maybe you can help us fill what Humberto just said with some life, like what are some of these practices that should be rewarded? How do you position yourself on this issue of cap rewarding common, like the, the provision of, common, of commons, so to say? Mm -hmm. There are some really easy indicators that you can explain to everybody that just show us that the forest is healthy. Uh, for example, is, uh, the natural regeneration of the forest in, in a good state and when the tree species are just at their place they should be and the eco uh, eco ecological function are there of course the forest can um, regenerate the, uh, itself and so if you look in a forest if you have this um, natural regeneration that's a really good indicator to look if uh, if you have a healthy forest um, if you uh, look at the uh, amount of native tree species in a forest or if they're coming from somewhere else that are maybe not really adapted. Um, of course, you you have also to look um, um, uh, all the functional ways to, to the skip roads. Are they really thin just to come through with a machine or maybe you're just leaving more space for forest. So you can really have clear um, criteria like um, having different species, different ages, uh, look at uh, how deep is the soil that you can really apply everywhere. The answer is not the same if you are looking to a Greek or a Spanish forest uh, than an Austrian forest, of course. But you can have those kind of indicators, type by type, a type that shows if the forest is really managed towards a good state or is already in good shape. And of course, I would like to to see the the taxpayer money um, in a kind of fund towards transformation. So the land use transformation 
uh, money should be called the, the, the gap. Uh, um, but but now the agriculture money and all this discussion uh, uh, on the agriculture money is really, really under threat. And so I don't know if, if we should mix, and we have it already now, of course, uh, good funds for that, but maybe uh, we should... Uh, yeah, make a new name of it because we have really fundamental difficulty with changing thing. We know we have to change, but we cannot. If you look at the automotive industry, when we are building electric cars, we need less people to do the batteries. And that's awful because we have less jobs. If you want to do ecological forestry or ecological farming, you need more people. Oh, that's awful. So in a way, we are not able to change anything if you think that we are going to have the same amount of jobs in the same sector for forever so i would say we need some deep transformation but we need some money to help this transformation i think that is a nice final word and i would now move to questions from the audience because we've been getting a lot and i feel bad if we don't take at least one or two because people have really been enjoying this discussion and pumping out questions uh, one is probably best place for Kelsey, which is Booker Costell Nicolai, sorry for butchering your name, who's asking for some examples of good slash multipurpose forestry practices from some of the EU countries to like help make this topic more tangible, I think. Yeah, sure. So um, we've also produced a video that I'm happy to share afterwards where we look at the development of close to nature forestry in Sweden, where you wouldn't think that that was uh, really a possibility since clear cutting is a dominant form of forestry practice, but also in Portugal, where people are producing cork from oak trees uh, and also in France. And so basically when you have a less intensive forestry model, you're allowing forests to grow or trees to grow to a larger diameter. And then instead of having these sort of thin little pencil rows of uh, what is essentially a crop, looks like intensive agriculture, you instead have a more dynamic forest with larger spaces, more the idea of a forest that most of us have when we think of one. And then you produce these, these large trees that can then be used to, to build your, your future Bauhaus or what have you. And of course, when you have these large diameter trees that you then saw into your construction material to produce these long lived products, you also have all of the waste that is generated when the bark and everything else falls off. And then, of course, you have a certain amount of production of, of energy, uh, like you have pellets and sawdust and things like that that can be produced from the waste. So you end up getting a plethora of different products from a type of production that is significantly more sustainable. So it's, uh, it's definitely a win-win in many areas, but it's not currently the way that subsidies are promoting the type of production. Today, we have full logs that are going to producing energy where the carbon goes instantly back into the atmosphere. So if we do want to promote under the Green Deal products where we're going to have our uh, beautifully made uh, wardrobe made out of wood that stays around for 50 to 100 years, then we need to start adapting our, our management models to be able to produce that type of wood. There are examples across Europe, but it is not the common practice, uh, the most common practice today. I mean, one person that probably fits well with the whole furniture debate is Stoyan with his walnut trees, because I seem to recall that walnut makes for excellent furniture at times. Stoyan, is that something you yeah, see yourself well, implementing listen, in your forestry management? It's, uh, sorry. I'm sorry, listen, uh, in order to get, um, <laughs> uh, you need about uh, 
120 years in order to get the wood to produce furniture from the walnuts. So it's going to be for the eventually great, great, great grandchildren. I just wanted to say, just uh, I didn't want to interrupt, but yes, CAP was uh, originally dedicated to uh, for the food after the Second World War, but now we have again war in Europe. So uh, just to you know to keep in mind, and uh, um, first of all, uh, food security, and uh, we, we have to think about this that without European farmers, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, um, um, and uh, I wanted to just mention a second thing, uh, in addition to what Kelsey said, that, uh, well, uh, in Sweden, they show me really uh, very innovative uh, technology that they are actually producing uh, batteries from the from the side products of the, the, yes, absolutely. They're producing pure carbon from the, the, the from the rest of the after you're using for the construction work all the the good cuts and then from the byproducts you can uh, burn them in a thousand degree and then make of them batteries so you see it's endlessly possibilities that you can go with the with the uh, byproducts uh, coming from the forest I must say circular economy never ceases to surprise me with the things that are possible with chemical recycling and whatnot. Anna, I understand, I think, if I recall correctly, that the Greens have a more nuanced position on the use of, let's call them biomass leftovers from forestry, etc. Can you explain a bit where this might lead if we too eagerly embrace uh, biomass waste as a product in general? Um, yeah, we know that forest ecosystem and soils are just really resilient and, and true ecosystem when a certain amount of wood is just let on the soil. Um, of course, when you are doing uh, furnitures or also wood for construction, you have some residues and it's really clear that it should be used for energy at the place. But if you are just opening the door and we have some lot of examples where you see it's okay to do some biomass with the residue and you're not defining the residue. It could be that you're just um, taking the two or three big trees that are really uh, good for furniture and the rest is just residue and you're doing a clear cut and you're making some um, some biomass with that. So that's really difficult to um, to step in, the, in this balanced discussion because we don't want uh, people to feel really uh, bad when they're locally using really sustainably uh, their forest uh, residues to heat their own localities or homes. That's not the, the, the type of discussion we have. But if you're looking what is happening now, we are replacing the coal power plant um, with a wood power plant to do some electricity. And we need a lot of forest and we're destroying a lot of forest. We need a lot of wood and we're destroying a lot of forest um, when we are doing just energy with that. And if you're looking how many energy we need in future, uh, that's impossible to be uh, to be the way. So we we must stop uh, the harmful subsidies, and we have to redirect the money towards transition to give some new um, possibilities for really interesting, um, yeah, management forests that are close to nature, but uh, you can use uh, the, the wood and also the ecosystem services for all purposes we need in future. I think that's a great transition to another question from Patricia, 
who's asking or more or less stating that European forests are aging and becoming worse carbon sinks as a consequence, also due to the fact that they're being subject to some amount of forestry management. And she's asking, and I think this is best for you, Humberto, what management strategies are planned on an EU level for these forests that are aging and becoming worse as a carbon sink as a consequence? Well, I would first dispute that statement because there's good science coming in showing that big trees not only store a lot of carbon in themselves, they keep storing it and they keep storing it in the soil also. So the balance of carbon between newly planted forests and uh, old, old forests uh, needs to be um, viewed otherwise. But in any case, I think uh, we have already touched on some keywords that help here, which is if I chop down a big tree to burn it, yes, I put immediately the CO2 in the atmosphere. Also, it's less efficient per unit of energy than coal, to be sure. And also, it does raise some air quality issues. So, of course, there's a role for bioenergy, but if you simply apply good economics through the cascading principle, when uh, using a big tree, there's much more value to take from it on other uses than energy. So, indeed, bioenergy has a role to play, of course, but it's adequate to go to those components of wood, the residues, etc., that deliver the most. This is not to say that we don't need dead wood in forests, of course we do. Um, and that's precisely one of the indicators of sustainable forest management that we are proposing the nature restoration law that should increase. So in the end, the subsidies, that's indeed a problem. When you put a subsidy somewhere that can become harmful, we need to tackle it. Subsidizing bioenergy is risky from that point of view. And that's why we have been proposing as commission more stringent criteria on uh, on uh, what is sustainable biomass in the context of the renewable energy directive that i hope won't be diluted by uh, by co-negotiators in the process of decision making one final thought still on harmful subsidies i call attention that cop 15 of biodiversity has agreed on several quantified targets one of which directly on harmful subsidies that should be reduced if i remember well by 500 billion US dollars per year until 2030 and beyond. So that's a big call for us in the EU and elsewhere to take a good look for all sorts of harmful subsidies. Restructuring subsidy is one. And Humberto, I'm going to keep you for a second because people seem to love to have you here and pick your brain because there's a lot of questions addressed to you. Uh, Josephine Johansson is also asking whether we need to reduce the forest harvesting levels in the EU to reach our targets on climate mitigation. Well, I think that's something for the member states to take a good look into. If for those heavily forested countries that recently reports their own national reports say the carbon sink has been decreasing from over harvesting, while at the same time they do have targets to fulfill under the LUCF regulation for more carbon sinks, well, member states will know better what they should change to address that. And this can go from forest to peatland, which is also a very good approach, restoring peatland to store carbon in the ground. So I do see a virtuous circle between LUCF and nature restoration that will allow a lot for member states to rethink and better plan how they can fulfill both their climate biodiversity and economic goals. Mm -hmm. Anna, sadly, your colleague Jutta Paulus is not with us, but she's famous for saying amore für die more, 
sort of love for peatlands, right? And since Humberto has brought up peatlands now, I have to put a dilemma before you. If you had to choose between re-wetting re peatlands or banning clear-cutting in the EU, and you could only choose one, which one would you choose? <laughs> oh, we just had this discussion before. Um, I would uh, go really, I don't, I hope I don't have the choice to, to make because it's a kind of a weird question. Um, but at the end, I think to stop to do the clear cutting now is more helping us in the next years. Uh, the rewetting uh, of peatland is an, a really long adventure that we, we, we should and we must step in. But we know that rewetting peatland, we have really to look at the uh, structure of what is on this soil, uh, which farming we are going to, to do a, a long process with uh, with the farmers, how to, to change and how to compensate. Or, And at the end, we know the first five or 10 years, we're wetting a peatland. It's not a sink um, in, 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 the, in the same years. You have to wait for years. And after we have a great sink of CO2. And you were, if we are stopping clear cutting now, you're just preserving the, the biggest ally we already have to help us through the next decades. So in the urgency of, um, of looking to, uh, to our climate, I, was, uh, I would choose um, stop the clear cutting everywhere on the world, if I can choose this one. <laughs> in our fantastic world. And I just want to, where you, to remember, yeah, and to step in also what Mr. Um, um, was told us at the COP15 in Montreal to biodiversity and the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh and also in the LULICF, we have everywhere um, that we have the natural climate protection. So we need the forest in good state and the forest soil in good state uh, if we want to do that. So I hope that with all these um, different um, yeah, instruments and also the natural restoration law coming up, we will succeed to be more serious on which kind of forest management we are allowing in, in Europe. And we want I to see evolved. You've just, we've compiled a long list in the course of this questioning. And I think it's a long answer to a very simple question from George. Marta, maybe you're best place to answer this because he's simply asking, how can we ensure at least 50% of our respective countries is covered in forest? How can we ensure it? Um, I think it depends a lot of on the countries and I don't think we can ensure it. I don't know, I'm not quite sure. But here I work mainly in the Mediterranean countries and it also depends on what do you say a forest is. Here we have um, big deesas, big like, we combine a big agroforestry system so the tree are really apart and we call that a forest and we are trying to protect it through uh, mixing animals and also doing in other type of management but i have no idea how we can ensure we have the our 50 percent of forest i think it will depend a lot of different uh, countries kelsey maybe that is something that you guys at fern also look at what is the perfect set of policies to ensure something like that or to boost forest growth overall aside from the fact that of course you want to ensure that there's quality forest too 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think implementation of existing policy is something that's particularly important. It's one of the reasons why we criticize the current level of ambition of the nature restoration law, because basically we're catching up for lost time and making sure the protected areas, which should be protected, are properly protected and, and the forests are have a good conservation status. To come back to this question about making sure that the coverage is enough, I mean, the Council of the European Union has already come forward with a statement that the rates of planting in areas that weren't previously forest is slowing down. And that's because we're running into land competition, whether that's for construction in urban areas or agricultural land. So I think we're really reaching the limit of uh, the quantity. And to be honest, there are many areas like in Ireland where the trees are so densely packed together that cows get lost and and you know, uh, agri you know, farmers get very mad. So, I don't think that we need to be focusing on the sort of density of how many trees we have in certain areas. And on that note, to come back to one of the points that was raised about about harvesting levels. I mean, this idea that we can perpetually increase the harvesting level doesn't make sense, understanding that we're running up to this limit of how many trees we can possibly put on the European continent. So, you know, we we are looking at restoration uh, to be able to both increase the sink and protect the store of carbon, which is the most important. And then we're also looking at this question of how do we revalorize the forestry sector since we can't continue with this increased harvesting level. We're talking about a maintenance or a decrease. So this is, uh, I, I do think this is something that, that everyone needs to swallow in terms of what the future of the forest economy looks like. And I think we've talked about some of those options today. I think restoration is a huge opportunity also for those that are producing uh, or that are managing forest for timber production. Uh, so the nature restoration law is one. Um, but I think we need to, to, to do better implementing with what we have and move quicker with these new legislations to put into place um, the, the measures to show foresters how to do close to nature forestry and to reward those that are starting to produce other products that are not wood. Stoyan, I assume that the ESC has been talking about the issue of forestry management for a long time now. I assume that you have been talking to your colleagues in other countries. How much of your business are you willing to give up? Let me just um, come back to the 50%. Uh, how, uh, what do you mean 50%? So we have to cut half of the Swedish forest because in certain countries you have more than 50% of forest, right? So uh, that's why the, you know, the measurements and calculation is something very tricky. And uh, okay, we're going to plant probably more in Spain, but what are we doing in Finland? where you have, I don't know, 87% of the, the, the surfaces in forest. Um, so uh, we, let's, let's be more prudent when we try to, to, uh, to give a, it's not a black and white issue. And, um, and the answer, it's not a kind of uh, in such a contrast. Um, uh, how much we should, <laughs> what do you mean to give up? Uh, <laughs> okay, you tell me how much of your dinner you're going to give up tonight, because by the end of the day, that's the question, what's on the table, what's for dinner, right? So, uh, it's yeah, we've been calling all the time, because we, in the ESC, we are representing not only farmers, but we are representing the industry and the, the trade unions. So, there is a social dimension on all this. 
how are we going to implement the proposals and the, and the laws? Who's going to lose his job? Are you ready to give up yours? So uh, that's a very, very, uh, we, 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 be, we should be careful when we're giving a, a kind of black and white recipes. Let's go straight, let's go left or right. And especially in such a, a very delicate area. We, yes, we do. Of course, we, we, we are the first ones suffering from the climate changes. And we have to agree with this because the trees are drying and the trees, I have trees, you can see 80 years old trees, it's dying. And that's the tree in the full potential right now. So, uh, of course, but uh, we, we should be more prudent by addressing uh, these matters. And that's, the, that's our vision. Mm. Humberto, given the urgency of the climate crisis and the tight timeline that you must follow, how do you ensure that you're not just ordering go left, go right, the level of prudency that Stoyan and I presume other forest owners and forest managers in the industry is calling for, how can you match such a strong demand for prudence with such a strong demand on your time and a challenging timeline? I think the points made by Stoyan are very important because all our, the policy would fail if the socio-economy would not be properly tackled. And I think a good part of the answer for this is this concept of just transition. First, let me put the other otherwise. Uh, we, the main crisis we face is not the war or inflation. Those are conjunctural crises. The big crisis is a crisis of global unsustainability. And we all know what's the underlying layer of the three layers of sustainability. That's the environment. But sustainability for humans, and humans is a society and an economy. So it, this wouldn't work if we would put the cursor or the pace in such a rhythm where several sectors would be jobless or losing their income or their perspectives or their identity. And this is the difficulty. We don't have a divergence of where we want to get all collectively, which is more resilient and happy societies. It's on the way to get there and the transition. And here it's very important to pay attention to the concerns of foresters, farmers, landowners, fishers, etc. But here I put the main message, which is some view uh, the issue as, as in this way. Either we have more nature or we have food security. Either we have protected areas in the ocean or we have fisheries. And that's a totally wrong view. Because for us to have fisheries, we need to have fisheries replenishment zones. And those are zones where we restrict from fishing to allow bigger fish to have more eggs and larvae. And nowadays, well, I call your attention, there's a report from the Joint Research Center of the Commission, which has looked to the links between restoration and food security. And the conclusion is, in the mid to long term, the best ally of food security is natural restoration. Because you get soil productivity back and insured, you have pollinators, you have all the services that food security as such relies on. Food is an ecosystem service mediated by farmers and very well so, but there's no food without thriving ecosystems. So we are aiming to the, the same thing, but we must manage the transition and help those that may face difficulties in the transition as such. Thank you, Umberto. I was going to leave you guys to do a wrap-up, but I think you've wrapped this discussion, these shades of grey that accompany the nature restoration law and the challenging 
tightrope that we all are walking in deliberating on these issues extremely well. I think all that's left for me to do is to thank you all for participating in this wonderful debate. Thank you for all the questions, the insights that you were sharing, the on-the-ground expertise that some of you were able to give us. Remember, stay true to us, hashtag EADebates, and we'll see you all next time.